Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Morning, morning, morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 12. So we're taking a break from Samuel again. We'll come back to it, I promise. We'll be done by March 5th. I worked it out. And we'll be going through the book of Titus. But right now what we're doing is we're going to think about culture, aspects of culture. You know, many of us here are proponents of the culture wars. We like the culture wars. But what I find fascinating in the culture wars is that in order to fight the culture wars, you actually have to have a culture. (laughs) I find that this is all too often a missing ingredient. Uh, As I always tell my rhetoric students, don't be against something, be for something. Nobody cares about what you have to say if you're just against everything. You have to be for something. And so what are we for? What are we for? What are we, what's the culture we're out there fighting with? Furthermore, you know, Christians, modern Christians, if we're going to be talking about this, have to have a conversation about what is lawful and unlawful on the Lord's Day. But when I think about that subject, you know, I think how inadequate I am to discuss it. It's, it's a big topic. It, there's a lot to it. It goes back a long way. It's very easy to get on the wrong side of the stick. And so what I want to do, what I've been thinking about doing for actually five years or so, is talking about a culture of festivity. What, what is it? What is this Lord's Day that we're celebrating? What is it we're doing on the Lord's Day? A few weeks ago, I preached through um, some verses in Ephesians about not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that was part of this. So there's an ongoing theme that I'm going to be coming back to again and again for the next couple of years. And Thanksgiving seems like a fantastic time to talk about it. We are a festive people. That's what's supposed to define us as God's people, a festive people. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a festive people? Next week, what we're going to look at is the spiritual blessing of the festal shout, because that's something that we also don't know very much about. What is the festal shout, and when should we give it? But today, let's open to Hebrews 12, and look at verse 22, and let us start to put together, start to reform our culture, our theology of festivity. So Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There, that's our culture. That is what we are for. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Paul's letter. I thank you, Lord, that you have showed us what goes on in heaven, even while we are here worshiping you on earth. I pray, Lord, that we would honor you, that we would thank you, that we would be a people that look to the heavens and to the grace that flows from it, and that we would be a people who rejoice and who give thanks and who are indeed festive. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, to discuss certain subjects with any kind of significance, it requires simultaneously discussing life and the universe. <laughs> I find that this, is all, uh, this happens more and more to me. In order to talk about certain subjects, I have to talk about everything. 
I have to talk about the whole Bible, and this, being a festive people, is one of those subjects. Death is like that. Love is like that. How do you talk about love without talking about all of life, all of creation, everything that the Word of God has to say? Festivity isn't an incidental aspect of life. It's not. It's central to understanding the purpose of creation. If you understand what festivity is, you understand what the creation is for. It's not, an, uh, it's not just there. Take it or leave it. Creation exists for a purpose, and its purpose is actually festivity. Now, this might sound like a hard sell, but bear with me. Bear with me. I got lots of verses. I got a quote from Plato. I mean, this is going to be a good sermon. Come on. Bear with me here. <laughs> First off, this is one thing I want to think about. We should consider the God who made the universe. We are made in God's image, but we are not told what God looks like. If you go back to Genesis in the start, it says we're made in his image, but we're never actually told what he looks like. Now, Dorothy Sayers, that great English thinker, pointed out that what you see God doing in the beginning is making things. He's a worker. So when her thesis is that we are made in his image because we're makers. That, that's, she wrote a whole book about it. It's an excellent book, Dorothy Sayers. You should check it out. We are made in God's image, and therefore we work, therefore we make. That's what it means, right? If you think about who God is, he doesn't have, an ar- he doesn't have arms and legs. He doesn't have a house like you do. So what does it mean that you're made in his image? It's not so much about how you look. It's about what you're doing. It's what you were made to do, and that's work, to make things. God is a worker. He is a maker. Now, work is an everyday occurrence, right? So think about that for a second. We are made in the image of someone a a triune being, three persons, who are workers. And is there anything, anything more mundane than work? And yet, that everyday occurrence of work has something to do with the God that made us and the God that we serve. That is profound. Now, I did a series on work several years ago. You can find it on our website, where I explore that idea a little further. But today... What I want, to, I want to go on beyond that and say a holiday, an everyday holiday. <laughs> have you ever been on vacation and the kids say, can't we just live here? We rent these beautiful homes. We go with the whole family and they're like, wouldn't it be amazing if we just lived here? And then you try to tell the little kid, no, it would not. Because then it wouldn't be cool to come here. <laughs> right? Think about uh, there are people who would rent our house from us and think it's quite something. I know, even our house. My mother-in-law laughed. Thank you very much. <laughs> But it's true, right? The grass is always greener on the other side. You go to some place you've never been before, but how long before it becomes boring, right? If you just were on vacation all the time, your life would be boring. Festivity, if, it was, if every day was a holiday, no day would be a holiday. They would, holidays would cease to exist. The festive quality of a holiday depends on its being exceptional. Now, a festival can only arise out of a life whose ordinary shape is dictated by the working day. If you have working days, so six of them, then suddenly what you can have on Sunday is a festivity. If, if your life is filled with work, then Christmas vacation makes sense. Right? Going on holiday with your family in the summer makes sense if you, are, if you have a job. If you don't have a job, if you're not working, vacation makes no sense. Holiday makes no sense. An idle, rich class of do-nothings can hardly amuse themselves, let alone celebrate a festival. Now, incidentally, pseudo-festivals exist, as well as pseudo-work, 
Not all activity, not every kind of expenditure of effort and earning of money deserves the name of work. There's lots of things that we call work that aren't work. I'm thinking here of professions like video game players, because I didn't even know this exists. But my kids go on YouTube and they watch other people play video games, and I cannot imagine a bigger waste of time. Like, if I sat down and thought about it, I don't think I could... And then come to find out these guys make an obscene amount of money. Because people will pay to watch other people play video games instead of playing the video games themselves. Now, you... Right? (laughs) I recently saw this video of this Starbucks employee who had to work two eight-hour days in a row. And I was like, no, that poor kid. That poor kid. Somebody please go rescue him. And, and the, I remember I worked at Starbucks for three years. You know how hard it is to work there? I mean, it's hard. It's not like when I was paving roads for a summer. I never went back to that job. <laughs> I mean, there are some things that people call work, right? It's kind of a sliding scale. Because if you're standing around wearing a green apron all day, right, making coffee drinks, it, okay, all right. I think I've made my point. Now, the word work it really, truly, should only be applied to the active and laborious procurement of the things that are truly useful. Okay? Now, if you are laboring, and what you're doing is, is creating something, you're creating the means to, to um, sustain life, we can call that work. Okay? If you're really, truly doing something, giving your labor towards something that means something, we can call that work. Now, and this is what I love about the Reformation. They restored the, the theology of work. Okay? The, the milkmaid, Luther used to talk about, is, is just like the doctor teaching philosophy and theology, doing God's work, okay? because she's milking cows under the Lord. And this is something that Protestants have to understand. There's not, right, we, we have lost the way on this. We think there's ministry work, and then there's just work. But, but we have to recover this. Again, I refer to the series I've already done on this. Go back and give it a listen. Now, one reason modern American Christians struggle with festivity and Sabbath is the fact that modern atheists, big business, and big labor have created a five-day work week and a weekend. Right? If you only work five days, you stop on Friday, you have Saturday to do whatever you want. When it comes to the Lord's Day, how, right, I think this is largely, and I've said this kind of thing before, why we don't care. Right? I did, if you lay around all day Saturday, do you really need another day of rest? So we've, we, we, this weekend, this five-day work week, and the weekend has done a lot of damage. And I, I realized this years ago, that you know what he did? is He created six days to work and one day to rest. And, and when I started working six days a week, when, I, when I, I actively was like, all right, you know what, my job is done, but there is a lot of other things to be done. There's a lot of other work to be done around the house, in the community, when I started working six days a week, I, the, uh, my ability to enjoy the Lord's Day went up considerably. Tilling the field should always include both happiness and toil, satisfaction, as well as the sweat of the brow, joy, as well as the consumption of vital energy. Okay, that We should always enjoy our work. Right? If we're made in the image of God to be workers... And the, our work is one of the central things about us in which we are living out image bearer, being an image bearer. But most of us hate our jobs, don't we? Don't we? 
Now, I want to read something to you. And, and this, why don't we understand, why don't we understand a true theology of festivity? Because we don't have a theology of work. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. I perceived that there was nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes 3.22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, how can a people who can't rejoice in their everyday labor hold festivals? Right? If we're supposed to rejoice in our work, how much more should we be rejoicing on a day of rest, on, on a day of holiday? And we're unable to because we cannot rejoice in our work. A theology of work is essential to understanding what I'm talking about. Now, amidst all of our fragile piety and our devouring busyness, we have a Lord who steps in and tells us outrageous things. Outrageous things. For example, he says, spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Deuteronomy 14, 26 to 27. Such unthriftiness, such waste, such gluttony, such wine-bibbing, Right? The Lord wants us to just be a bunch of gluttons and drunks. Is that what this text is saying? It seems so wasteful, doesn't it? But such is the command of a holy and loving God. In Genesis 2, God delighted in his work. He says, this is very good. And because he was delighting in his work, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rest now. I'm going to delight in my work, and I'm going to show the delight in the work that I have by resting. Because that's part of it. You're enjoying the labor by resting from the labor, you're looking, you look back on the week and you think, look, this is very good. Now, how many of you on Sunday morning stop and think about the week that has come and think, you know, this is good, not good, very good? How, how often do you, do you assess the labor of your hands and say, you know what, this is good? If we're, if we're unable to do that, how do we sit down and eat Thanksgiving dinner? Deuteronomy 14 is foreign to our modern ears, for God tells us that celebration is central to pleasing him. It is central to leading the good life. Modern American life is no time for serious festivity. It doesn't know what its work is for any more than it knows what its rest is for. And America learned this from the church. We taught her. We've got work to do, projects and deadlines and hobbies and sports and chores. And for all our industrial strength pragmatism, how many truly important things get actually accomplished? And, and, and <laughs> how often do you get to the end of your work where you can be like, man, that was a week well lived? What are we really doing? Or what are we doing that we're not recognizing? Now, meanwhile, the triune God, again, comes along in Nehemiah 8.10 and says, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Eat fat and drink sweet. Man, if the FDA could hear that. Can you imagine? (laughs) 
hey, give me all, <laughs> give me all the sweet and fat you got. No, 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 not that. That was made in a factory. Yeah. Right? If I really wanted to find something that was sweet, how far, like, where would I go? It's kind of hard to find. There's a lot of fake sweet. There's a lot of fake fat. But our God literally tells us to eat fat things and drink sweet things. And again, we hear this, we're like, oh, how cringe, right? I've been reading this book, and, and I can't eat that because I'm on, a, on, the, I'm on this diet now where all I eat is meat, lean meat. You're like, I, I met a guy recently, and he, he was on one of these diets. I was like, you don't even eat, you're on a diet where you only eat meat. That sounds fantastic. But how could you do such a thing where you don't eat bacon? It's like it seems not worth, I, I, I mean, if you're, you're going to have an all-meat diet and not eat bacon, you might as well just eat vegetables too. See, festivity, what it is, is worshiping God with our bodies, with material creation. The material creation that he has graced us with. That is what the material world is for. Now, there's, we have these dichotomies, these false dichotomies. Well, no, true spiritual things are not bodily. They're spiritual. But why does Romans 12.1 say to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual worship? Paul has no problem with this. You want to offer spiritual worship? Well, then kneel when you confess your sins. You want to offer um, bodily or spiritual worship? Then raise your hands when we're singing songs. Bow your head when you're praying. Sacrifice. Right? Do something with your body to show me how much your spirit loves me and serves me and is near me. But we create these dichotomies, these false dichotomies. So a man sitting down to an eight-ounce piece of meat and a nice potato there covered in fat, right? Just get all that. That's why I love potatoes. It is an excellent way to consume fat because you, you cover it with all kinds of fatty things. Now, and you see a guy like that, and how many of us think, man, that guy really loves the Lord God? <laughs> What's, what happened to us? Now, I'm gonna, now, okay, if you're sitting down every day to that milk, Every day, twice, right? Your lunch and your dinner is the same, seven day a week. That's also part of the problem, but I'm going to come back to that because that guy doesn't love the Lord either. Okay, he's not, he's not demonstrating what I'm talking about. Now, the reasons for our rebellion are legion. Gluttony as a, is one of them. When the average portion size is as big as what you find at Five Guys or Taco Bell or Patty's Egg Nest, I ate there yesterday. I couldn't believe the portion size. I was like, who are we feeding? My entire family? I ordered two of these, go back and feed everybody. I could, feed a, I could feed a small village in Ukraine with the amount of food that was on the table yesterday at Patty's Egg Nest. I cannot believe the portion sizes. Now, why is it one day I just woke up and noticed? I was like, who are they feeding at these restaurants? <laughs> you get to the Five Guy bag, and you see just the size of the hamburger, and you're like I, like, I could cut this in half, and my wife and I could both eat. Or I could do what they want me to do and eat the whole thing and be a glutton. Right? One of the reasons that we can't enjoy a nice 10-ounce steak on Sunday is because we're eating 12-ounce steaks all week. But you know what makes a steak taste really good on Sunday? is a fast on Friday. Fast on Friday, thinking about the worship of the Lord, thinking about all of us coming here and doing this together. You try that, and then you come back and you tell me how good that stuff tastes on Sunday. Now, in America, we work for vacation. That's cessation of work and entertainment, right? That's what we work for. We work so that we can take a vacation. We work so that we don't have to work. 
We save up our money so at the end we can retire and not have to work anymore. We're, right? we're saving our vacation days. We're saving our PTO hours. We're, we're saving, saving, saving because we work because what we want to do is get out of here and get, and get away from work and stop work. But the possibility for festivity is also destroyed by the lie that man's daily life, taken as a whole, is nothing but vexation, futile bustle, deadly drudgery, and inward meaninglessness. Right? How many of you guys think, like, this is just, <laughs> I go there every day, and I do this work, right? I, I do this work, and it's all meaningless. Shakespeare said it best. He put these words in the, in, in the mouth of Macbeth. This is one of my favorite Shakespeare lines. Macbeth, staring out at the enemy who's coming to destroy him, having just learned that his wife has committed suicide, says, Life's but a walking shadow a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And how many of us really think our workaday lives is that? It's just not, it's really full of sound and nothing. It's a waste. Solomon comes along in Ecclesiastes 9, 7 to 10 and says, Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do, let your garments be always white. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Shehol to which you are going. There is no opportunity to work in the grave. So the days that you are given here to do the work that the Lord has providentially given you, it, it, every one of those days is precious and glorious. Every one of those days is a day to, be, to delight in and receive with gratitude and thanksgiving. It's, <laughs> you don't get to work in hell, he says, so enjoy it while you can. Moderate, and most of us are like, what? Come again? <laughs> I, I, I like it when we go to, get to go to the, you know, to the peninsula once a year. That, that's what I enjoy. I enjoy going home and working in my garden. I don't enjoy this job. I do this job so that I can do these other things. And, and that is the wrong way around. You can't enjoy the things that you do when you're not working if you don't enjoy the work you're doing. Now, what are festivals? Now, throughout Scripture, feasting stands as the central expression of celebration. Festivals call for a cessation to ordinary workday activities. It replaces them with communal activities. There were frequent public festivals, including the weekly Sabbath, the monthly New Moon Festival, three main festivals in the Old Testament, Passover, celebrating the Exodus, Pentecost, celebrating the end of the barley harvest, and Tabernacles, celebrating the final harvest and gathering. Now, I'm going to say here, any, pagans like to have holidays in which they celebrate the corn king, as he's called. And some Christians get a little confused because they worship the corn king. And we think, well, we can't worship, right? We can't have festivals that, about bringing in the grain because that's a pagan thing to do. Now, there's a pagan way to do it. And what we learn, if you read the Old Testament festivals, is that there is a godly way to do it. Right? So to say that the holidays, some holidays belong to pagans, sometimes we're confused about exactly what that means. Just because they do it too doesn't mean we can't do it. Okay? It's how you do it, not whether you do it. Now, by the New uh, Testament times, two others had been added to this list, and this is also very interesting because some people say that we shouldn't do holidays that God has not expressly told us to do. And yet Jesus is worshiping two different ones in the New Testament that nowhere is to be found in the Old Testament. 
It's nowhere in the Old Testament. They're traditions, and he participates in them. First is Purim. The other is Hanukkah. He celebrates both holidays. It is evident from these examples that festivals celebrated two types of occasions, faith events in salvation history, such as Passover, and nature events in the yearly cycle, such as Pentecost. Israelite festivals were crucial to a sense of national unity, just as dinner in your home is a festival of the communal life of the household. Worship in the first churches were known as love feasts. This is an Old Testament idea. The people come together at a festival. And dinner in your home should be a daily festival. Because everybody's going everywhere. And then here is a time where we slow down. right? It's, dinner is not like lunch. right? I, I love a bag lunch. But if you sat down and ate a bag lunch at dinner time, there would be something missing. Right? So if you think about dinner, it really is, on, on the possibility at least, of being an actual daily festival. Because this is what festivals are supposed to do, bring people together. The images associated with festivals in the Bible cluster around six things. Breaking routine, lavish abundance, ceremony or ritual, sacrifice, community, a holiday spirit, and a focus on God. And we're going to be looking at all of these this week and next week. If you really want to understand Old Testament festivals, I would read Leviticus 23 and Numbers 28 and 29. It gives you a sense of what a festival is supposed to be. Now, from the prophetic books come pictures of the perversion of festivals. One is neglect. Malachi describes people offering blind, lame, or sick animals in sacrifice instead of the unblemished ones because they're like, eh, God doesn't really care. He doesn't really care what I wear. He doesn't really care what the sheep look like. No, he said, bring, bring me perfect ones. So, right, it's neglect at that point. He doesn't really care about these external things. And figuring out how much he cares about external things versus internal things really throws most of us. Isaiah describes Israel's sin of not calling upon God or being or weary of him, not bringing offerings and sacrifice to him because they're just tired of it. The more customary abuse was nominal observance, going through the motions like a tiresome requirement instead of making the festivals an expression of a grateful heart. Malachi pictures people performing sacrifices while actually saying to themselves, what a weariness this is. And I know that none of us have gotten up on a Sunday morning and thought, this is weariness. You know how many churches closed down and went to live streaming services and then never went back? Because they thought, you know what's easier? Staying home. <laughs> it's true. That is way easier. And there's just something about us, something about this age in which we live where we fell for this. We went for it. You know what's actually, you know, it's really weary to get in the car and drive all the way down there, put on nice clothes to go through the whole thing for two hours, listen to Mike talk for nearly 55 minutes. I mean, that sounds, that's weariness, let me tell you. It's the definition of weariness. But are weary, things that make us weary necessarily bad? Are, are things that make us tired, things that are hard to do, even if it's a day like a festival day, right? Think about how much work you go into just making a turkey. I'm smoking a turkey this year. Usually I have nothing to do with the turkey. And I have to go back to every woman I've ever sat at, whose table I've sat at, and ate a turkey and give them a hug. I can't believe how much work goes into a turkey. I really wish I hadn't said I was going to put. And so this is true, right? There are festivals where you're like, man, I am so tired just from putting this thing on. But that doesn't make it not worth it. Now in Amos... 
there's actually a little story there about these merchants who can't wait for the festival to be over because they want to sell goods. They're like, come on, open the stores, open the stores, open the stores. Let's go back to the stuff that really matters, making money. Now I'm going to read, I've already read Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, but let me read another one, Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Because there's an important aspect of the Bible that we don't understand. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. Okay, how, how, does, how does human history culminate? What's the telos? Where are we headed? Well, we read about it in Revelation chapter 19. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So where we're headed is something quite festive, right? We've all been to weddings. How festive is a wedding? In the way that the end of, of this portion, this age, we end this age at a festival. And this meal that we participate in every week is a, is a sort of a precursor to that. It's a little taste of where we're going. Now, this is quite fascinating to me because you go back and you read Genesis, and what was in the garden? Trees for food. Why is God so obsessed with food? Why is he, right? Why is he filling the world with it? It's really funny. If you get a book and you start, like, this, I went to a restaurant where they had things in the food that I would never in a million years dream of eating. But it got me thinking, I bet there's food all over the place. I bet I don't have to go to Safeway to find things that I need. I bet I can go down the forest down the street where my kids play in the creek, and I bet I can find things to eat there. And then I thought, well, why does God put food all over the place like this? Why is he kind of obsessed with it? Why is he making our Sundays, our, our, our weekly festivals, about a meal? What does this tell us? The new Sabbath is a festival of creation. We are here, and it is a weekly festival and we are, we're celebrating things that will come and things that have been. It is a participation in the festival of the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future. The Lord's Day is a weekly festival of Christ in every conceivable way. When Paul, writing about the Lord's Supper, enjoins the Corinthians to celebrate the festival in 1 Corinthians 5.8, he's talking about the meal. He's talking about corporate worship. Now, this terminology brings to mind the, the Passover. That's what he's referencing. But the accompanying statement that Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed, that's in 1 Corinthians 5.7, signals that the Old Testament sacrifices have been replaced with something new. Because we're here celebrating our wedding with the Lord God. And what are we feeding upon? The Lord God. Who are we singing to? The Lord God. Whose word are we hearing? The Lord God. Right? And you're, I don't usually dress this nice. I know that that maybe shocks you guys. But in my workaday life, I don't usually wear a tie. But why am I wearing a tie today? Right? Why recently when a pastor said something about never preaching in jeans, I was actually felt convicted about it. Because I wear jeans all the time when I preach. But, what, but then I was thinking, well, why do I care? What is this care? Why do I even care about this? Because I, then I started thinking about what today is and who we are here in front of. Right? And if, and if even Joe Biden called me to go to the White House, I wouldn't show up in Puma sweats. 
right? It'd be absurd. And if I would show someone like that who I have no respect for, honor because of his office, how much more when we come here? And again, I'm not going to get into lawful and unlawful. There's just something about today that we don't understand. We become very flippant very quickly, right? All kinds of things from the week invade. Today is not about us whispering as we're in a library. It's not a day that we spend on our knees beating our chests as if it were a fast day. Neither is it a religious work day. We're not going to start holding three services. It's not a day for work, whether setting diamonds or running around diamonds. It's a day to gather and to feast with God's body, with fellow Christians in our households and in God's household. That's what it's for. Because today is about all the festivals from the Old Testament put into one. It's about the festival at the end of human history put into one. It's every conceivable kind of festival in the Bible every week. And we're like, eh, you know what I'm going to do this weekend? I don't want to go fishing. You know, but I, I, I don't want to lose Friday. Right? I don't want to lose a vacation day to go fishing. But I'll lose the Lord's day to go fishing. And I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I've been there. I've done that. I have stayed home to watch football. I I said it. (laughs) So this whole thing is a process. And this is what I'm talking about on behalf of all of us. We have got to stop and think about our culture and think about who we are and think about who we serve and think about what he requires of us, what he wants from us. And it's not gluttony and overindulgence. Right? But it's not a tight bod, tight-fisted thing either. He, he gives us six days to do all kinds of things, any, right? all the normal work that we do. Why is it that we can't resist doing those things on Sunday? Because there's, there's something here we don't understand. When you, when you take a day off of work, you're not working. So you know what you're also not doing? Getting paid. Okay? So when you take a day off, you lose something. But I think even here, modern America has gotten us because how many of us get paid holidays? I would say a paid holiday is not a holiday because you're not sacrificing anything. You're like, wait, I can stay home <laughs> and ha- and, and, and on, on 4th of July and I can eat my weight in ribs and I can spend $1,000 on stuff that I'm going to... Ex- like, I go through fireworks faster than I go through bullets when I'm going to the gun range. Like, we're going to spend a lot of money but it's okay because I still get paid for being here. It's, I mean, it just seems like it's not a sacrifice. Because on, on the holy, holy days in the Old Testament, you're not working, so you're losing the money. But you're also taking the choicest animal that you have, and you're just you're slaughtering it and burning it. And you get a little bit of it. But like the idea of sacrificing for a, for a festival is lost on us. Because I have actually turned down jobs because they didn't have paid holidays. I was like, wait a minute, well... I mean, when I want to celebrate Memorial Day and I want to think about everything the soldiers have given, I don't get paid while I'm doing it? Uh, Steve and I have had enough. <laughs> I used to work for Steve, and he and I could squeeze a paid holiday out of, <laughs> out of any week you want. Okay? We're, we're excellent at it. Now, why? What are we giving up? Festivity is meant to be a sacrifice. It's meant to be a day of rest, It's not just a day in which work is not done. It's also an offering made, the yielding of labor, the yielding of goods, the yielding of supplies. No work means no fruit from the mislabor, but this requires faith. And here's where we come to another problem. 
Why don't we want to give up a day of work? Because if I'm not there, it won't get done. Right? If you're not there, your work will not get done. And it all depends upon you. And some of us can't take a vacation because we think the entire corporation, consisting of thousands of employees, is going to implode if we are not there. And I've been there. I I remember the courthouse. I was like, no, 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 no. There's a huge case. I can't take that day off. Because if I'm not there, they'll fail. (laughs) Those poor saps. And when I hear other men talk about their work, it's like, oh, my gosh, dude. I did not realize that you were the CEO of the company. I did not realize that the entire company and everything it does rests upon you. That's fascinating. How much are they paying you? They should pay you more. But this is another reason why we can't give it up. It's a lack of faith that anything is going to be accomplished without us. Because a festival, believe it or not, is a phenomenon of wealth. The wealth of money, but also existential richness. Existential richness, yes. Only wealthy people can have holidays. Because only wealthy people can afford it. But we're so, right, we're so wealthy, we can't afford it. It requires the absence of calculation. Lavishness is one of the key elements. And this is where a lot of us also go wrong. We are so tight-fisted and such tightwads, we have no idea how to be lavish. We hate the idea of Santa Claus. You mean he just drives around in the sleigh and gives the presents away for free? You're going to spoil these kids. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9, teaches us that both scarcity and excess are equally dangerous to true festivity. We may properly say that every festival conceals within itself at least a germ of excess. This is why some of us have trouble with it, but in two different directions. Some of us live you know, by the plastic card. We're so far in debt. We're so lavish all the time that you set aside a day to be lavish and we can't do it because it's just a way, it's like, what is this? It's nothing. It's meaningless. Some of us are so such tightwads, we can't possibly imagine wasting something. What do you mean you're going to give them four scoops of ice cream? You're going to spoil those children. Yeah, I want to be just like Santa Claus. Right? If you go outside right now and you look up in the sky and you look around and you go over to your car and you open the hood, at what point were you spoiled in that process? Well, you were spoiled before you ever got up because you're sitting there, you're breathing, your body's like processing the food that you ate yesterday, all of these things that are going on, at what, at what point is he spoiling you? And yet we get to a holiday or a festival or a birthday and we're like, no, 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 no. That would be too lavish. You're like, well, you sure don't want that. Right? I, I <laughs> if you buy a nice bottle, this has happened to me more times, my wife can testify. I'm like, I'm going to buy this beautiful bottle of wine, this expensive bottle of wine. I'm going to save this. Mm-hmm. And I can't make it to the holiday, and I drink it before then. <laughs> well, we were going to have the ribeye, but Mike ate the ribeye already, right? So now what do we got to do? I'll be, we go buy another ribeye. So is that a festival? No. And I'm sure that none of you ever do anything like that. Spend all the money that you would spend on a festival in your everyday life. See, because we take the things from the festival, and we do them in our everyday lives. And then we take the things from our everyday lives and we do them on the day that's supposed to be a festival. 
Why? Because we're very confused on this. See, this is Mark 14, 5 through 7. This is Jesus. This is how Jesus treats a festival. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, his disciples say. Jesus, why are you letting her waste it like that? And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. They're giving her a hard time. Why are you, right? And this nard that she had is actually like a a family inheritance. When I preached on this in Mark, it was like worth $20,000 in our our modern money. It's this canister of essential oils. It was even harder to come by them then than it is now. And it's very pricey. And she's just like, you know what? I'm going to just throw this on Jesus. And all of his disciples who are with him all the time and see what kind of guy he is and who he is are like, why are you wasting it on him like that? And this is what we do to our wives. This is what we do to our children. Some of us are incapable of giving them a festival. Why? Because we're holding on so tight we don't want to spoil them. Now, a festival is not just a day absent of work. It's not as if you sit there mindlessly and do nothing. Everyday work cannot be thought of apart from its purpose. Right? What is everyday work for? Well, there's a whole economic system. But when you think of a festival, what is it for? It, it's an act in and of itself that has its own meaning in and of itself. It, it's separate from everything else. Right? My car, my job, my home, my clothes. The, my workaday life has all of this stuff that's all connected in this larger economic system. But a festival is disconnected from all of that, and it, its purpose is itself. By what virtue does an act possess the inner quality of being meaningful in and of itself, though? The implication is that festivity, in general, is in danger of extinction, extinction, for arrangements alone do not make a festival. Calling Thursday Thanksgiving, preparing a turkey, and otherwise creating an event will not make it a festival of thanks. And this is where, a lot, again, a lot of us go wrong. We, we hold events, but are they festivals? It's how it's celebrated, not whether there is an event. Just like on the Lord's, the Lord's service, lots of churches hold events on Sunday morning, but that does not make them festivals. I would include us sometimes. Just because we all came here on a Sunday morning and we did all the stuff we're supposed to do doesn't make it a festival. We understand this, and it's true of other holidays. Having an event is not the same thing as having a holiday. The glorification to which man is being moved the fulfillment of his being is the beatific vision. The beatific vision. Everyone say that with me. Beatific vision. Okay, one more time. Vision. That is your purpose. To behold the most beautiful thing in the world, and by beholding it, becoming like it. Right? He became a man to make men into gods. Right? God became a man to make men into gods. This, again, is a whole series I've done before. We don't understand that beholding the face of God, looking upon the Lord, contemplating the Lord, beholding the Lord, is the thing that is sanctifying and glorifying us. We think it's us doing it. 
But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This means the greatest escalation of life, the perfect activity, the telos of all of our desires, the partaking of the utmost fullness that life can offer to us takes place as a kind of seeing. More precisely, that all this is achieved in beholding the divine foundation of the cosmos, Jesus Christ. Even the pagan Plato said this, this is that life above all others which man should live in the contemplation of divine beauty. This makes man immortal. It's a truth so true that even Plato understood it. Right? And, and, and I don't usually go there, but think about it for a second. Even a pagan like Plato, and there's a lot I could say about him, understands this. The highest kind of life is gazing upon the divine being. Meditation is the act of calling to mind some supposition, pondering upon it, correlating it to your own life. A wicked individual meditates upon violence, Proverbs 24.2. The meditation of a righteous person contemplates God or his great spiritual truths, Psalm 63.6. He hopes to please God by meditation, Psalm 19.14. Meditation by God's people is a reverent act of worship. Through it, they commune with God and are thereby renewed. We do not worship Christ as mere abstracted point of integration, but rather we love him as our creator, as our personal creator, our personal savior, our personal friend, our personal relationship with him. This permeates everything which follows and is well characterized as the love of things lovely. Right? We, we, we gaze upon him, and by doing so, we learn true loveliness, true beauty, true goodness, true love. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so we, why would we start with something lower than God himself? And the more we contemplate him, the more we recognize and delight in beautiful things and good things and righteous things. In the present life, the utmost happiness takes the form of Christian contemplation, and God commands us to set aside a day to meditate upon, to worship, to contemplate through songs and words and fancy clothes and tacos and Pinot Grigio and laughter and fellowship and Rectech barbecues. Amen. Bicycles and double fudge, card games. Right? What, what, is, what does God say in Psalm 19 and in Romans 1? Everything that exists is what? Reflecting the glory of God. And so you don't just sit down to a steak and potatoes with all that fat piled on top and think, man, cows are great. Now you can if it's a process in which the end is like, man, God is great. You know, you know when you're sitting there and you're playing card games with all your family or any kind of board game, and you're looking around, you're seeing the joy, you're seeing the laughter, you think this is what the three persons of the Trinity have been doing for eternity. Spending time together, loving one another, enjoying one another's company. Because the cosmos, the purpose of it, has, it, is a focal point to think upon the creator of it 
And so everything in the created order serves this purpose. And so what God wants you to do is take some of your money and buy some special things in creation and sit down and through them contemplate him. That's what he wants you to do. That is the good life. That is a festive people. Now, Joseph Piper wrote this. He said, whenever anyone succeeds in bringing before his mind's eye the hidden ground of everything that is, he succeeds to the same degree in performing an act that is in itself of the highest meaning. Karl Perenyi, a Hungarian mythologist and philologist, I'm really going far afield here, but I want to demonstrate the fact that this principle exists and you cannot avoid it. He says, a union of peace, intensity of life, and contemplation is essential for festivity, so that to celebrate a festival is equivalent to becoming contemplative and in this state directly confronting the higher realities on which the whole of existence rests. So you're good, right? You, you get up on Sunday morning, you take the Coca-Colas or the bottle of wine, and you put them in the fridge, you go to church, you come back, you sit down, you pop it open, you pour the Coke or whatever, and you look upon the glass and you think, isn't God good? I'm gonna, man, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? You get out the, the salad. Why not? Let's do it. He made everything. <laughs> right? And, I, and like this is, I remember when I was like 25 years old and I saw for the first time a salad that had fruit in it. And I thought, everyone's been making salad wrong my whole life. <laughs> right? Because you take these right, vegetables over here, fruit over here. You make things with fruit over here. You make things. The fact that somebody thought to put them together. And then, wonder of wonders. I remember the first time I ever saw someone put nuts on the salad. And I thought, you just keep adding things to this and make it worth eating. <laughs> and then, someone put bacon on it. And I thought, look at this. From, every, from the four corners of the food groups comes glory. And I had the same experience the first time I saw someone put fruit in water. And I thought, wow, I've been doing water wrong all my life. It doesn't work when you put bacon in it, though. That actually is too... There are some things you should not mix bacon with. I, I said it. At least water is one of them. Now, I, I've been quoting Plato and Hungarian mythologists, but he, this is Thomas Brooks, a Puritan. And th this is why we, we get the Puritans wrong, and this, this partially proves my point. But he, he makes my point here for me. Thomas Brooks said, Remember that it is not hasty reading, but serious meditation on holy and heavenly truths that makes them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the mere touching of the flower by the bee that gathers honey but her abiding for a time on the flower that draws out the sweet. It is not he that reads most, but he that meditates most, that will prove to be the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest of Christians. In the glass, in the games, on the plate, in the preparation for worship, the cosmos is the means of festival, and God commands us in Deuteronomy 14, 26 to 27, to spend our money on objects of creation and consume them before his face 
enjoying good things provided by a good God before the face of that God. Bustle does not make a festival. On the contrary, it can spoil it. And this is another important point from Luke 10, right? Remember the two sisters. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, Mary, has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Because I have been at festivals, I love everybody, in your homes, the women will not sit down. They won't. I'm like, listen, you've already asked me five times if I need anything else, and I don't. How about, though, you come and sit here with us, and you enjoy the thing that that all of this was actually about, And that is us looking upon one another, asking questions of one another, laughing with one another. And when we do things at our house, this is one of the principles. We try to do the work to a point and then stop. Stop the work. We've done the Martha thing. Now we're going to do the Mary thing. And and, and I don't usually see this with guys. I see this very often with ladies. Because what, what they're trying to be, a godly and upright host. But, but it's a Martha-Mary principle. Martha it to a point, and then sit down and enjoy yourself. That's the rich and abiding thing. That's the better portion. The better portion is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And when we sit with one another, and we hear one another laugh, and we share with one another what he, God, is doing in our lives, that's the part where we're sitting on his feet like Mary. That's the greater portion. That's the purpose of having people over. That's the purpose of our get-togethers. Now, the Roman philosopher, Seneca, he liked to throw the Jewish Sabbath under the bus because he saw how the Jews were keeping it. Actually, he's a critic of the Jewish Sabbath, not because he hated the Jewish Sabbath. He hated the ways the Jews were keeping the Sabbath. He said... A day is not lost if what is done on the Sabbath is what is appointed, the contemplation of divine things. He understood that Jews were supposed to be contemplating the divine things. And he watched them, and he's like, look, you hypocrites. And so he used to say, listen, don't be like them, the Jews, who have this day that their Lord gave them, in which they're supposed to rest from their labor and have a festival and contemplate the living God, and they don't do it. Don't be like those guys. And Jesus would be like, amen, Seneca. Amen. Common grace, brother. You see the point. Memorial days are not in themselves festival days. Strictly speaking, the past cannot be celebrated festively unless the celebrant community still draws glory and exaltation from that past. Not merely as a reflected history, but by virtue of a historical reality still operative in the present. This is what I mean. If the incarnation of God is no longer understood to be an event that directly concerns the present lives of everyday Christians, it's impossible, even absurd, to celebrate Christmas festively. Right? All those people who celebrate Christmas, and it's not about all the material stuff in it, is not about the incarnation, the most material thing that ever happened, then it's absurd that they'd celebrate it festively. It's absurd. Right? You can't... You have these holidays like the 4th of July. What are we celebrating on the 4th of July? 
I, my, my parents, we usually go to their house. The neighbors all think it's crazy because when we light up fireworks, they say, death to King George. And I'm trying to keep alive at least the idea that what we're celebrating here is the fact that we threw off a tyrant. We said, no king but Jesus, like they said back on the original Fourth of July. Because we, we, we divorce these things from their meaning, from their purpose, from their origins. Therefore, the day of Thanksgiving, or what has the day of Thanksgiving become? Bereft of its Puritan joy, bereft of the divinely given harvest in a wilderness that made the hearts glad, bereft of a time to honor and thank the living God for his providence. On what grounds does a specific event become the occasion for festival and celebration? I cannot believe pro-choice people celebrate birthdays. Because who cares, right? It's, it's absurd to me that they would celebrate birthdays. Birth is the thing that they try to avoid, up to and including murder. It's a mockery that they celebrate. It makes me angry to just think about it. If you think it's absurd that we're born, if you think it's better that some people aren't born, why would you celebrate births? Anyway, I'm sorry. See how easily I get distracted? If we cannot rejoice in our workaday lives, if we cannot offer up a day's labor like Martha to sit at Christ's feet like Mary, to contemplate our beautiful Lord, if we cannot sacrifice those things that, may, that take us away from the Lord's festival of grace, if we cannot lay out a lavish spread to gather around in true Christian fellowship, if we cannot delight in our national Christian heritage, if we cannot look back upon this last year and see God's gracious and hand of blessing on everything, then Thursday will be an event, but it will not be a festival. So what are you planning? Are you planning an event or are you planning a festival? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, for the workaday life. We thank you for the weekly Sabbath, the weekly festival. We thank you, Lord, for Thanksgiving. We, we pray that as we go from here that we would, in our own homes, our own hearts and minds, consider what it means to be a festive people. Consider what it means to truly, truly, Lord, set days aside to glory in your goodness and your kindness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.